I managed to go in 1978 for a semester as a language student to Leningrad State University. And it was amazing. I mean, it was a really cold, really forbidding, really difficult to understand how all of these people could be standing in lines for cheese. And yet this was our like huge international adversary. Like, what's up with that? And because very few people had actually been there, we all had this impression of what the Soviet Union was really like that was completely at odds with the reality. Born in Grinnell, Iowa, her journalist parents, her education in Slavic studies and Russian affairs, her career at the New York Times, all prepared her to launch her disruptive healthcare startup, Clear Health Costs. Welcome, this week's guest, Jeannie Pinder. In part one, we cover Jeannie's upbringing in a loud, challenging home environment with five siblings and the experience of being part of the family's local newspaper, the Grinnell Herald. Jeannie discusses the high expectations of her parents, being conditioned to be comfortable with chaos and living in an environment of emotional abundance but material scarcity. Jeannie also covered how her worldview was expanded by exposure to foreign dignitaries from her father's work with the State Department. Jeannie discusses her experience of being part of the counterculture movement during the Vietnam War, how her interest in international affairs led her to Indiana University to study Slavic studies and Russian affairs, which resulted in her studying in Leningrad in Russia in the 1970s and 80s. We discuss that experience and the current state of Russian power and politics and their influence on the current US political landscape. Jeannie explains how working at the Des Moines Register in the 1980s led to a job opportunity as copy editor at the New York Times and the joy of working in journalism at a seminal time in world history. Finally, we discuss the current state of national and local journalism and the power of community to affect genuine change. In part two, we dive deep into what led Jeannie to create her journalism meets healthcare startup, Clear Health Costs, her perspectives on COVID-19 and a whole lot more. Jeannie, welcome to the Impossible Network podcast. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, well, thank you. A big shout out to Tina Kelly for recommending you. So I'm really pleased that we managed to make this happen. I know yeah. you're probably you're very busy with your Clear Health Costs initiative, and and in a, in the time of COVID nineteen, you must be finding everything's coming into sharper focus at the moment. Yeah, it's a completely different kind of reporting from what we've been doing. Very gratifying and very um, important work. Well, we'll come and dive deep into Clear Health Costs and the work that you're doing and the what led to the initiative and the idea in the first place. Mm-hmm. But we'll start off with jumping right back to your upbringing, where you grew up, the impact of your parents on the uh-huh. journey you've taken. Yeah. So I was born in Grinnell, Iowa, into a family of ultimately six kids. My family runs a small town newspaper there called the Grinnell Herald Register. There were a lot of us because there were six kids. We had a very loud family, a very smart family. It was a challenging environment to grow up in because you always had to figure out some way to stand out. You didn't want to happen to be the person who came home from school with a B on your report card or with anything <laughs> less than straight 99s on your standardized tests. Particularly in English. Uh, yeah, conversation at the dinner table was not exactly a blood sport, but you were definitely expected to hold your own. And uh, we're very close to this day, I guess I would say, growing up in that environment. What about siblings? Yeah, um, so there are uh, five now. We lost my younger brother 
just after he turned 50. Um, but there are now five of us and we do, we're in touch. We're very close in touch. So your father ran the newspaper or was it your, or your mother? No, it was uh, my father, actually. He um, married the boss's daughter. They met and married in Chicago after the war. And um, my mother's father had actually bought the small town newspaper in Grinnell, Iowa, offered her his daughter's bridegroom the opportunity to come and work as the editor of the paper. Uh-huh. My my dad said no. He was an East Coast boy. He didn't want to move to a small town in Iowa, but he agreed to do it for a year as just a test run. And the rest is history. Wow. Yeah. He ran the paper. We all worked there. I started working there at the age of 13 as a cub reporter due to my family's child labor policies. So was before he married into that and that became his career, what was he doing? Was he a journalist? Uh, no, he was actually an accountant. He They met and married right after the war, so he'd been in the service. And um, my mom was uh, a career girl. She graduated from Iowa State University with a double major in journalism and home economics, which was very unusual at the time in the 40s. She did things like working in the Libby's test kitchen, devising the recipe for beets that went on the can of beets. She was involved in introducing... Uh, pre-made baby food. This is a huge thing in the wow. in the forties. So she was a career girl, and she married late, married him, and then moved back to Iowa and had six kids and raised all of us. She's an amazing mom. That intensity of upbringing with high expectations. I mean, first of all, oh, actually, I should say, are you the oldest or the youngest, middle or from? No, I'm the third of the six kids. The script is the the hyper-responsible middle child. So was the expectation on you from your parents, they all expected you to go into the family business and become journalists? Or did they really encourage you really just to follow your own ambitions and, and passions? Follow our own ambitions and passions. As it turns out, five out of the six of us wound up in journalism. But mm-hmm. I don't think that was because of them. I mean, I don't think my parents invited that to happen. I think it just happened. Uh-huh. I tried to get out. It didn't work. So what, what was that upbringing with obviously a very intense and probably joyful experience of, of having uh, five other siblings and, and a, probably a, a very dynamic household? What was your sense of, sort of freedom to explore and, and discover your passions like growing up in that household? Yeah, so... There were tons of books. There were always books. And there was always um, somebody challenging you to either do better, be smarter. We were competitive swimmers. So we were always very competitive. You said something in one of your questions about, are you ambitious? Never ambitious, but competitive. Uh I mean, we were always competitive with each other. We grew up in that kind of competitive environment. Because it was a big, complicated family, there was always something happening. Like somebody throwing up, somebody getting a broken arm, somebody winning a, a swim meet, somebody getting a prize. There was always something going on. It was a very um, active environment. And I think, you know, indeed, in some ways, really chaotic, which I came to learn in later life, only recently realized that I'm actually much more comfortable with chaos than most people. And I don't know whether it traces back to that or whether you can be born with something like that. But it was definitely a um, surprise-filled childhood. 
There couldn't have been many moments of silence growing up. No, no, no. I mean, it's interesting when you sort of speak to people and we interview people who are single children or grow up in single parent households, how isolation and silence and time on their own and time to explore their imaginations is because that's all they have. But in a household right. like that, it must have been very dynamic and fast moving. And we had, the, my parents had very high expectations uh, for us in academic terms, in reading terms. My mom had um, made a list of 100 books that we needed to have read by the time we graduated from fifth grade. And, you know, it was just a very, um, it was a very interesting environment. I've come to think as children, of course, you assume that your childhood is the same as everybody else's, right? You don't have any reason to think that it's different. But in retrospect, I know, for example, going through grade school and high school, I had two older siblings who preceded me. And by the time I came along, I was like, oh, you're a pinder. So, <laughs> so there was the sort of, the way was paved for us. And it was fun and interesting. It sounds like it was an environment of abundance and, and not of scarcity. Is that fair? We were really poor. I had no idea. I didn't know at the time because when you're living in a place, a small town in Grinnell, Iowa, the disparities are much less visible. And also, this was the 50s and 60s. Yeah. So I had no idea how poor we were. We assumed, I felt that it to, when you asked, is it scarcity or abundance? Yeah. I felt it to be complete abundance, but I realized in retrospect, my mom used to sew our clothes. And probably hand-me-downs as well. There were hand-me-downs. There were definitely hand-me-downs. You know, she was a very careful shopper, and because she was a journalism and a home ec major, she was very artistic about putting together menus that cost not very much money. Using produce from the garden, she was a great gardener. I never realized it was scarcity, but I think in, in many terms it probably was a kind of scarcity. Uh, so material scarcity, but uh, emotional abundance. That, yes, that. Uh-huh. When you describe it, it sounds like a, a probably a, a quite an average upbringing of people in, in, those, in those times. I mean, I grew up in the 60s and 70s, and it was similar. I mean, my, I, my, my mom would repair clothes. I, would, I didn't get hand-me-downs from my sister, that's for sure, but <laughs> there was uh-huh. certainly, there was always food on the table. But yeah, I know that she looked after every penny. There wasn't a lot going right. spare. And how do you think that affected you? I think, I wouldn't say I'm frugal, but I'm aware of things. I'm conscious of trying to live sustainably and not putting things to waste. I've always been that way. Um, so I think, mm-hmm. I think that's something that was uh, ingrained into you in growing up in those mm-hmm. sort of times. I mean, obviously things change, but I mean, I think it's going to be interesting to see how kids growing up in this, these times. I was listening to someone on a, a podcast yesterday talking about how your attitude to life when you're between the ages of 7 and 14 tend to define you as you grow up. And if you think about this generation who are between 7 and 14 now and what this time is going to be like, and that's, it's not going to be over in three months once lockdown. This is, there's going to be changes here that are systemic for the next, I think, probably the next decade. How it's going to affect their attitude to life and whether you're optimists or pessimists. Um, so I think that's going to be really interesting. But certainly, I mean, I think I grew up in a time of, I felt optimism. I didn't ever feel pessimistic. I mean, obviously, we grew up in a time of fear around nuclear war. 
But it'd be interesting to get a sense of you and what your global view was like with a family of journalists. Was it very locally focused or did you have a, a sense of the world and the inequity that existed? Right. So it's a small town newspaper that was focused very much on news from the uh, the community and the surrounding agricultural area. But my, my father was also very interested in international affairs. So he became, he traveled a lot and he became um, a steward of a portion of a State Department program that uh, was attached to visiting dignitaries who came to the United States. They would take them on these tours to like New York, Los Angeles, Chicago, and then uh, to my family's house. (laughs) So my dad, as a part of the State Department thing, would host these visiting dignitaries. They would come and stay in local hotels and motels and then visit local families. They would come to dinner at our house. They would get a sense of what agriculture was like, because as you know, a visiting dignitary from then Rhodesia or China or Russia would definitely want to go to not only New York and Los Angeles, but also Grinnell, Iowa. (laughs) Of course. It's on everyone's bucket list. Absolutely. So we grew up having these um, family dinners two or three times a year where this delegation would come and we would all have to sit at the table and be model prisoners, um, (laughs) but learn about other countries and... um, show them what a typical American family was like. And so it was very international, as I've come to understand. I mean, then again, it was normal. That's just what we did. But I've come to understand that I think that's one of the reasons. We've all interested, all six of us, in international affairs. One sister is an expat. Everybody's got some sort of foreign something going on. Mm -hmm. So I think it came from that. You said you were comfortable with chaos. Was it just the nature? Do you think it was the nature of the household? that engendered that um, that comfort? Yeah, I think so, because there was always something crazy happening. Like, for example, my older brother and sister, the two eldest of the siblings, had um, eye problems from, the very, from birth, from the very beginning. And it gradually evolved when I was, I think, around uh, nine or ten, that they had a birth defect that resulted in them traveling back and forth to Boston, Massachusetts to Mass Eye and Ear for a series of operations. Ultimately, my older sister actually lost her eyesight completely. My older brother is now legally blind. But there was always like something, there's always something like that happening that had to be dealt with, reacted to. If it wasn't somebody throwing up, everybody having flu at the same time, everybody, you know, breaking arms. It was, you know, something major like that. And I think that really, when you started talking about the the idea of this podcast, that kind of came back to me, the thinking of like growing up in that that sort of environment, it teaches you that things can happen at any time and you have to react to them and life goes on. What could be worse than losing your eyesight? What could be worse? And yet the sister wound up going on. She mainstreamed high school. She mainstreamed college. She graduated from Yale Law with honors. So, you know, the idea that your life is over once you lose your eyesight was sort of Mm -hmm. not acceptable. So there's a resiliency that was imbued in you as well or instilled. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. So how did that, I mean, with a with a taskmaster of a mother setting 100 books to read before you graduate, you must have been this model student at school. So the young, it was a young genie 
excelling at school and with um, all your teachers holding up as the, the, the perfect example of the studious pupil? Uh, no, I was a disciplinary problem, actually. I probably would have been the valedictorian, but I dropped out. So, well, it was that time, you know, mm-hmm. it was, I dropped out in 1971. Uh-huh. Um, this is, you know, in the middle of the anti-Vietnam War era, need to get rid of Richard Nixon and the war. So that was kind of what I majored in, <laughs> in high school and wound up and wound up dropping uh-huh. out. I had just turned <laughs> 16 and went to Grinnell College a year early. It must be fascinating. I mean, being I grew up in Scotland and I was very conscious um, of international affairs and remember watching on television scenes from, I mean, this is black and white televisions back in, in, the, in the late 60s, early 70s, scenes from the Vietnam War. But having you have a very different perspective when you're British and it's not your war. It must have been quite an experience to grow up in those times and to see the activism of the youth, the movement. What did it feel like? That's a really good question. So when I was in high school, there were only a very few of us sort of counterculture. We called ourselves freaks. <laughs> I don't know why. We didn't call ourselves hippies. We called ourselves freaks. But there were maybe a dozen of us in my junior high and high school. We were counterculture. We were marginalized. We were never expected to amount to anything other than counterculture because, of course, you know, the government had right and might on its side. They were the ones that started the war. They probably knew what they were doing, actually. This is a backwash of the 50s and 60s. But as it turned out, as time wore on, of course, the nation joined us. So it's a perspective that I think makes it well, I don't know whether I would say it's a different perspective on the current U.S. politics than what people have who didn't have that experience of growing up counterculture in the 60s and 70s, right? We won. We yeah. won. Yeah. Were you aware at the time of, I think, was it McNamara? who was the defense secretary, the, his, his flawed strategy. No, nobody understood that until the Pentagon Papers came out. I mean, it wasn't uh-huh. it wasn't something that anybody knew. We did know we had, you know, friends who went off to Vietnam and never came home. I had a boyfriend who, who's I still remember the day when they had to draw numbers for the draft. Mm-hmm. He got a really high number. One of his friends got a low number and declared himself a conscientious objector. Um, there were people in my town who went off and didn't come back, and everybody knew somebody. Because the draft was the draft, except mm-hmm. for people like Donald Trump, who didn't have to go. Yeah, the connections to those days and the sort of the, right. the injustice of that process. That countercultural movement, uh, that countercultural character, has it stayed with you? Do you think it defined the journey you went on uh, that gave you enduring purpose in life? Well, you know, journalists question authority for a living. Like That's yeah. what we do. So, you know, which came first, the chicken or the egg? I'm not really <laughs> sure I know which. You went to Russia in the 1970s for two years to what was called Leningrad, but otherwise known now as St. Petersburg. Why and how? And, and that must have been an extraordinary experience. Yeah, it was crazy. So I went to uh, Grinnell College and declared a Russian major. At the time that I was at Grinnell, because of the state of international affairs, it was pretty much impossible to travel there. 
Uh, there were very few exchange programs. They were very selective. They were very expensive. So as an undergraduate, I didn't get to go. But um, when I left college, I decided to abandon journalism. I'd had eight years as a working journalist under my belt, and I felt like that was a good, great, good plenty. It was the family business, and going into the family business seemed like a failure of imagination. So I decided I would become <laughs> an academic. Uh, went to Indiana University to major in Slavic linguistics, as one does. And what instil what what gave you the interest in in Russia and and Slavic studies? Well, I'd always been interested in languages and international affairs. I went to Grinnell; they had a language requirement. And I picked up French because I'd had French lessons as a kid, but wound up placing only into the second semester of French. I got pissed off and uh, <laughs> dropped French and picked up Russian, which I'd always been interested in different language. Uh -huh. We'd had a Russian delegation during the State Department experience with my dad. It was a mysterious place, a closed kingdom, Sputnik, you know, the nuclear threat, the mutual assured destruction. So I picked up Russian and um, loved it found a bunch of really interesting people, great professors. And at the end of the second semester, actually, I knew I was going to be a Russian major. So absolutely fascinating country and language and literature and politics and history and religion yeah. and you name it. So I went to Indiana University with this declared Slavic linguistics uh, major, terrible academic, terrible, terrible academic. I just don't have it in me to do that. Um, I did spend a lot of time learning how to train horses. I took a horse with me to graduate school. Um, but academics was not going to be it for me. What it did do for me, though, was to keep me in the orbit of Russian affairs long enough that I could actually manage to go there because it wasn't really possible when I was an undergrad. So I managed to go in 1978 for a semester as a language student to Leningrad State University. And it was amazing. I mean, it was uh, really cold, really forbidding, really difficult to understand how all of these people could be standing in lines for cheese. And yet this was our like huge international adversary. Like, what's up with that? And because very few people had actually been there, we all had this impression of what the Soviet Union was really like that was completely at odds with the reality. What, did you go with a, with a group of other students or were you on your own? Yeah, Council for International Educational Exchange. There were, I think, 20 of us. Um, we stayed in dorms. We had Soviet roommates who were informing on us, working their way through school as informants, which is... Wow. I mean, people have these jobs working their way through school. Some people work in the cafeteria. Some people are informants. Mm -hmm. They must have seen you as quite a novelty as well and being so curious about life in, in the US to understand. Right. Or were they limiting your exposure to everyday Russians? Well, a little bit of both. Like our roommates were supposed to collect information on us and read our mail and stuff like that. But pretty much all of us who went had phone numbers and connections of people who lived over there that had been passed on by previous. So we all, you know, knit together friendships and had um, things going on that were well outside of the official purview, which was, you know, exciting, engaging, inspiring, interesting, dispiriting. Mm -hmm. terrifying. People smuggled things um, out for their friends. We knew people who were taken away or people who knew people who were taken away. My friends were not like extremely 
well-known dissidents. They were sort of on the edge of dissident circles in what was then Leningrad. But yeah, it was a crazy experience. Mm-hmm. And because I hadn't had enough of it, I came back after a semester, worked for three years at the Associated Press and the Des Moines Register, and then went back to Leningrad in 1982-83 on independent study program with my chosen area of study, Soviet journalism education. So I did that for a full academic year, during which time I met, I met the guy that I would marry at the end of uh, my time there in 1983. It was a really interesting time. An American or a Russian? No, no, no. He's, uh, he was from Lithuania, but he was the flavor of Lithuanian who was told all his life he's not Lithuanian because he's Jewish. Mm. Yeah. So Interesting. So what, you must have been there when you first went under Russia was being present was Brezhnev, I believe. It was Would Brezhnev have been? time, yeah. And that was yeah. under Carter's reign here. So Yeah. And then obviously you, through that period of going back in 82, it was then... Reagan and was it Andropov or? So Brezhnev died. We'd been there, I think, a little over a month when Brezhnev died. Uh-huh. It was Khrushchev. Was it Khrushchev or Andropov that no, took over? Brezhnev, Brezhnev was succeeded by Andropov. Yeah, he lasted Andropov, yeah. for a year. Remember the yeah. secret police guy? He lasted yeah. for a year and then he keeled over and was replaced by Chirinenko. Ah, right. Yeah. And yeah, uh-huh. so it was definitely really interesting to have been there in. 78 under like the full flowering of the Soviet regime and then to to watch the transitions that took place after that and to see what's happening now. I mean, it's insane. Back to the future. I know. You must have, I mean, of, of course, I mean, um, Putin was schooled under the classic KGB, right. well, classic KGB sort of schooling. So right. it is, what's your, I mean, what is your view of what's really going on? It truly is. It's back to the future. Mm. He's probably the richest man in the world. He's never going to give up power. They did elect our president Mm -hmm. for us once, and we'll certainly try to do it again. Uh It's a very complicated time, much more complicated than 1978 or 1982-83. Are you concerned about this upcoming election? Yeah. uh Do you think it'll happen? Well, Yeah, and I think what's more disturbing is that it will happen not only at the national level, but also the state level. Mm -hmm. Do you think, uh, given what's happening with the virus, that we're creating an environment where there might be a delay or a cancellation of the election? Anything could happen. I mean, you could wind up with an election where, I don't know whether you noticed what uh, happened recently in uh, Wisconsin, where they went ahead with the election, but voting really violated the sort of shelter in place. There are a lot of people who went out and voted at great personal risk. Whether the same thing will happen in other locales on down the road, I think we have to imagine that will be true. Whether voting by mail will be possible if the United States Postal Service dies, which is something you've seen headlines about. Voting by mail would be an obvious way for people to cast their ballots in an environment where sheltering in place and social distancing is the rule of the day. But if we have no postal service, then nobody can vote by mail, yeah. right? And we can't trust the technologies that are being used for for, for electronic no. voting. No, no. So I think all bets are off. I think it's a very difficult uh, time for our democracy for a lot of different reasons. Well, let's maybe just come 
back to that when we talk about your entrepreneurial journey. Coming back from Russia, and you said you were focused on academia, but you were going to—you weren't exactly going to be the best academic. Right. Your migration was from education into journalism. What was it that drove you back? I mean, obviously, you went back and worked with family business, but you—you you then moved away. Right. I spent a large. I probably spent a large two years as a serious academic in graduate school. And then, to be perfectly honest, going to uh, the Soviet Union at that time was less about academics, more about discovery and journey and traveling, and also learning how to speak Russian, because you really can't speak a language if you're trying to learn it out of a book. So when I went the first time, I came back and immediately wound up in journalism again. And then the second time, so in that that period between those two trips, I'd happened to work at the Des Moines Register, which is a great newspaper. And um, I took a leave of absence to go to the Soviet Union for the second time. When I was getting ready to come back, I didn't really want to go back to the Des Moines Register. I was lucky enough to have had um, four or five friends who had worked at the Register who wound up at the New York Times as editors. So as I was getting ready to come back in May of 1983, May and June of 1983, I wrote to them, I'm like looking for a job. And they were like, you should apply here. And I said, at the New York Times, <laughs> like they really want people who have three to five years of Metro daily experience. Generously, I have three. They'll never take me. And, and my friends were like, no, 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 you should apply. You should apply. So I went ahead and applied and actually got hired, like fresh back from the Soviet Union, to be a copy editor on the foreign desk of the New York Times, which was amazing. That must have been extraordinary um, in the mid-80s. Yeah. yeah. Wow. So in 1983 to 1993. So we killed off communism, um, talked to Nick Kristof from Tiananmen Square. There's wars, pestilence everywhere. And this is with the smartest people in the world covering foreign affairs, right? The New York Times. So it was amazing. Nelson Mandela. I mean, you name it. We, we just had the, the greatest stories in the world. And we were talking, we started out um, talking to people by telex. They would be correspondents that were, you know, in the bush for three weeks and wouldn't be able to talk to anybody back in New York and then come out with these amazing stories. But it's not just... Th- it's not just the world affairs, it was the, also the evolution of technology and how right, it was changing. Right. You mentioned telex. But in that defining period, we, we saw the emergence right. of the in early stages of the internet right. and how technology was changing. And presumably as well, those were times when the structure of American news reporting was changing as well. Right. And the, the emergence of uh, news channels Right. I can't remember what the change in the law was, but wasn't there some sort of change that led to the regulations around news reporting on cable channels? I know less about that than you do, I'm sure. Yeah, so that must have been extraordinary. And, and learning under some of the great copy edit- editors in the Times. And correspondence. Must have been an ex- and okay. Yeah. Yeah, it was really fun. Who were your mentors at the Times at the time? Uh, Joe Lelyveld was the foreign editor. Yeah. The foreign editor who hired me was Craig Whitney. I also worked for Warren Hogue and Bernie Gwertzman, some of the titans of American journalism. Joe Lelyveld was a special favorite and my one of the biggest inspirations for me in journalism. He's an amazing guy. 
amazing. So we have we have to ask um, when we talk about these times, every day becomes a sort of a new chapter in the sort of the farcical nature of the world, and it feels like a pantomime at times. At times, what's your perspective on? on fake news and when you hear it being banded around and, and journalists, respected journalists being berated on a daily basis in the, in the White House briefing room? Hmm. I think the pendulum swings. I think it's swinging back. People are looking now to journalists for truth and justice in a way that mm-hmm. they didn't even two months ago. Because I think um, average American really pretty much understands that what's coming from the podium at the White House is not necessarily what's really going on. It's no accident that readership and news organizations has gone through the roof just at the time when advertising revenue has evaporated. And all Mm. of these great news organizations are laying people off. It's heartbreaking. Because local journalism has been decimated over the last 10, 15 years. And yet... Now, people are probably needing, um, relying on local journalism more than ever. Right. And not just, obviously, to, there's the, the broader global perspective and what, where people go to get their news. But when you're dealing with a crisis where your community and your family is at threat, local journalism and local newspapers or the new, local news organizations are the place people have presumably turned to. What do you think is actually happening on the ground around the country? Well, I can talk about my village here in southern Westchester, for example. We had an amazing newspaper that was a a weekly paper with an associated website that was run by a former uh, Reuters vice president who did this pretty much as a labor of love. I'm not sure she ever really actually got it to pay for itself. But she ultimately decided that this was probably not going to work for her to subsidize it. So she uh, folded And what's really come to the fore in the absence of that is this Facebook group, the moms of Pelham, and then there's the parents of Pelham too. It became very important uh, during the time of Hurricane Sandy when that was the place that you could go to find out which gas stations didn't have lines and who had a generator that could help you charge your cell phone. And that's really one of the functions that it's performing now too, is where do you go to get tested and also uh, how do you get a grocery delivery? It's not journalism. It's just a you know, group of community members who are contributing things as they see fit. A lot of times the information isn't really corroborated or checked except by the crowd. So it's sort of full-on crowdsourcing. Okay, we'll leave part one there. Come back tomorrow for part two, where we dive deep into what led Jeannie to create her journalism meets healthcare startup, Clear Health Costs, and her perspective on COVID-19 and a whole lot more. If you like the show, please subscribe and ideally give us a five-star rating and a review because it helps more people find us. Just go to iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast player to listen and subscribe. This show is an Impossible Network production and is produced by Bettina McKaylee and Elaine Castillo-Keller. But for now, be curious, be creative, and seek out serendipity. See you next time.